Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this monthly market insight, Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about the month just gone and what the future may hold. Hello and welcome to this February edition of Monthly Market Insights. We're a month into what hopefully will be a very different year uh, than 2020, even though it probably doesn't feel much that way just yet. I'm Phil Attree, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and I'm joined again by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. As we take a look back over the past month, we'll also take a look forward as to what to expect in the weeks ahead. So, Will, if maybe we start with taking a look at the asset class class Derby, uh, so to speak, year to date. There have been a few areas that have made a bit of a racing start. So looking at Taiwanese and Chinese equities, uh, most of the commodity complex, and to a lesser extent, uh, higher risk company bonds as well. Is there any link that we're seeing between some of these? Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel uh, another month's gone by. Uh, yes, obviously, we need to be a bit wary of sort of, you know, fitting a narrative too closely to the sort of moves of one month. But these moves do sort of correspond to a kind of reflation trade idea. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you have a very complicated near term if you think about it. Um, or, you know, you think about it too hard. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? You know, you have the emergence of several potentially more threatening variants of COVID. You know, large chunks of the, the, the world economy remain in a kind of suspended animation, um, both as a result of kind of government mandate and indeed, you know, consumer risk appetite. The vaccination programs are, you know, logistically fiendishly complex and there's, you know, potential for slips. However, you know, the carrot on the other side of that for the economy and for investors more generally is this kind of alleged wall, gigantic wave um, of potential consumer spending as the sort of crisis eases a little bit. And, you know, of most significance to the world is the U.S. consumer here. um, But savings ratios, you know, the proportion that an economy um, saves of of its income uh, are historically incredibly high in a lot of countries. And so there is a feeling that you know, UK included, so that, you know, and this is, this is incorporated into forecasts, you know, so many forecasters are looking at the second half of the year and have penciled in some extremely strong growth rates for the world economy. And that's sort of, you know, that, that very complicated picture for investors. And you can see the sort of, uh, you know, the current stick, so to speak. But the, you know, the other thing to mention um, that wouldn't have shown up in your kind of asset class derby that you mentioned there is obviously this incredible story about, you know, these day traders taking on the, many of the big short positions of the, uh, the major hedge funds. Yeah, well, I mean, and turning to, you know, that social media trading story, I heard you and others referring to almost as post-truth investing. And by that, I think you mean that the value of a company can basically be pretty much whatever you want it to be as long as you bring others along on that journey on that story with you i mean that's certainly not the basis of stock analysis that i and probably you learned back in our earlier stockbroking days is that not a bit of a concern to sort of see people investing in that way yeah i mean phil you do worry a bit and you're right that's not what we were taught (laughs) value is what you want it to be um but you know you worry a bit for these guys i have to admit now i'm obviously you know, I'm obviously a buzzkill here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, but to me, you know, day trading and roulette are, you know, pretty much inseparable. I guess as long as you know going into this that you could lose all of your money, as you can with all investing, it's just, you know, the more diversified you are, the, the harder that is in a sense. But 
you know, then it's very much your money to play with. So I shouldn't be sort of too buzzkill about it. But, you know, and I guess the other thing is that, you know, this idea of post-truth investing doesn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be a very new thing. Uh, you know, alternative truths have long been present in markets. You know, you can read uh, J.K. Galbraith's famous take on the Great Crash of 1929. It's full of very compelling stories of people believing, buying into false truths, alternative truths and, and post-truth. Um, and, and, and all bubbles, minor and major, you know, over, over history demonstrate, you know, this to, to, to varying degrees. You know, however, you know, while little pockets of, uh, you know, delusional valuations always exist in some corner, the, the bigger kind of mass delusions tend to be a lot rarer. Most of the time, and you and I have talked about this before, most of the time, you know, a sharp price rise or price fall, in fact, represents most of the time uh, a change in the underlying truth with regards to that particular investment, you know, whether it's a step change in technology or innovation, altering, genuinely altering um, the prospects of that in a particular company, country or sector. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's general, you know, big mass market bubbles tend to be a bit rarer than advertised, um, but certainly little pockets of these things do exist. And that that's certainly what we're seeing at the moment in terms of a sort of a gap between valuation and reality, likely underlying reality. Quite. And I, th- I think for me, it's probably the difference. We've talked about it on the Personal Finance Series podcast with Rob Smith of Behavioral Finance about the difference between speculation and investing and the fact that actually when it comes to investing, which is primarily what we're interested in, you know, it, it's more about meeting longer term objectives. And that's actually not supposed to be that interesting. But I guess, you know, uh, at times like this, uh, the, these stories probably resonate with an awful lot of people. Sticking with media, there there are, you know, some fairly well-known commentators out there openly talking about um, you know, equity bubbles in the wider markets, aside from some of those stocks that, that, that we've sort of talked about. Do you and the team subscribe to this sort of equity bubble story right now? No, no. I think, as I just said, you know, and um, before we go on, you know, Rob Smith's a perfect person to talk about this. And uh, I was talking to another regular contributor to our uh, you know, public forums, Michael Haslam, and he was saying that we should advertise ourselves as a get rich slow scheme, which is kind of exactly what you're, you're talking about. I think that's right. You know, it's that long term investing is a patient business and it tends to be a bit it should be a bit more boring than you know, these amazing price stories that you're seeing. In terms of that wider bubble, I mean, I think if you look at the sort of major companies that dominate the index, I think, you know, we've made the case on here before you and I that the cash flow assumptions you need to make in order to make the current prices work, you know, they 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 leave very little margin for error, that's for sure. But there's a big difference between that and a major market bubble. And actually, a lot of these companies, you know, relative to you know, 2000, 99, 2000, you know, that really famous TMT, uh, the technology bubble, you know, where a lot of the companies there were really, you needed a lot of imagination uh, to make those those valuations work. That's less the case this time around. You know, you have got some, you know, incredibly cash generative companies really dominating the majority of entities. And in aggregate, we still feel that, you know, equities represent an attractive bet long term, even if some parts of that market do look a bit expensive in the short term. Quite. And this was obviously a topic that you, Nikki and Rob, spoke about again on the weekly podcast. Uh, I mean, in a sense, market prices are telling us that brands, you know, the likes of Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Google, a lot of the famous ones that obviously are out there, people will be familiar with, that those companies, those brands are going to continue to win market share and win in the way that they have been through these pandemic times. Is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly one interpretation. You know, essentially, this pandemic is 
you know, has fired the starting gun uh, for the fourth industrial revolution. And, you know, in this new economy, some are speculating, you know, and we talked about this again, that, you know, our homes become the centers of production and office life, office life fades to, you know, obsolescence. You know, and think about it, you know, this world could have all sorts of consequences. You know, if work moves more local, then so does consumption. Perhaps this has a knock-on effect on the types of brands you go for. You know, the recent resurgence in a kind of pre-industrial artisanal business, you know, these kind of coffee and bread making and so on businesses, that could become, you know, that could accelerate. Or, and I think this is the more important point in a way, is you can speculate an entirely opposite path, you know, where the end of this pandemic could see you know, us desperate to leave this digital prison uh, that we're all living in at the moment. You may, some people may perceive it differently. And the value of face-to-face transaction is, you know, burnished by its painful absence over the last year. And perhaps, you know, in that line of reasoning, this pandemic is actually the death knell for the digital revolution rather than its sort of rather than its facilitator or Kickstarter. You know, more broadly, you know, interestingly, I think is that you know academics have long wondered or puzzled over the existence of the corporation and what are the driving factors to how you know people have chosen to operate outside of markets in a sense and create these businesses where transactions are taken in, in internally, you know, the mega corporation? And and also what are the inputs into deciding what the optimal scale uh, for these businesses are? Now the interesting thing I think is that you know, many of these scenarios that people are speculating over involve um, a significant fading of some of those things that we had assumed were influential in making companies, you know, large companies persist and exist, you know, so things, I mean, I won't go into it, I can get too boring about this, but things like, um, you know, the possession of transaction specific assets or uh, something called mighty and uncertainty. And a lot of these things will actually, should actually fade in those circumstances. So you could find an era where actually the mega corporation is no longer the dominant form in, in, in companies and actually smaller companies start to become a, a much better way of organizing ourselves. So, and I think the point about this kind of long and winding ramble is that, again, it's a reiteration that this kind of idea that you need to have this kind of, you know, bet the house on one macho vision of the future and that you're, um, that you're weak and, and uncertain if you don't, has long been proven to be an idiotic way to invest in many ways. For those who are looking at sort of diversified, uh, diversified investing, you've got to try and sort of, uh, you know, diversify across a range of futures to understand that there isn't one path. It's not always a continuation of the recent future. Uh, and that's very much, you know, the, you know, the organizing philosophy behind how we do our investments. We, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, the team tries to mathematically imagine hundreds of thousands of different viable futures and find the mix of assets that is most robust in amongst all of those, uh, you know, potential paths ahead. And quite, I mean, that leads nicely on to my final question around, I mean, we've talked on various mediums about the fact that you and the team have been adjusting some of our long-term thinking within portfolios and that's actually happening within our client investment portfolios right now how are you and the team you know looking at sort of positioning for the year ahead yeah well i mean you know part of it is you know we're positioning for the years ahead rather than just the year ahead so as you know we've just sort of you know traded our new strategic asset allocation and the interesting thing about the context for this you know this uh, updating of our portfolio holdings you know the mix of assets and how much and what and so on is is you know the the real sort of difference different factor is that of interest rates and bond yields. You know, usually a stock part of most portfolios that kind of more defense give the portfolios more defensive edge. 
you know, they are now genuinely, we've said for a while, they're offering kind of a bit more return-free risk than risk-free return. Well, that's gone completely into that camp. You know, you're guaranteed um, a loss after inflation um, by investing in many of these previous staples um, of the portfolio. So that's an interesting conundrum for long-term asset allocators. And our you know, our team have come up with uh, an asset, uh, you know, a mix of assets that we think, you know, caters to the new world or the many potential new worlds. So, you know, diversified commodities, that asset class that's done well over the last month, we hope it does well over the next 10 years. That's increased a little bit uh, in, in many portfolios. And, you know, there's also other sort of little bits of the capital markets spectrum, which we've had to use uh, in order to compensate for that very different interest rate outlook relative to um, relative to prior periods. And tactically, you know, at the moment, we are looking a little bit more in terms of emerging market, emerging market debt exposure is one of the sort of more tactical opportunities. But again, we're sort of ready and waiting for sort of the opportunities as they come about and when they come about. It's at the moment, we're looking and sort of scouring the world for those opportunities. Um, at the moment, like I say, our portfolio, tactical portfolio, that shorter term package of bets, contains many less deviations uh, than it contained last year, for instance, where there was a huge number of opportunities in certain parts of the year, uh, and the tactical team took good advantage of that. And although we hope that there may be a few less opportunities of that type uh, this year, we're certainly sort of, you know, we're well set to continue to exploit them. And I'm almost certain that they will come. Um, thanks, Will. Insightful as ever. And I do hope that 2021 brings us the opportunity to do this face-to-face in an office, as opposed it's been a year now of doing this uh, virtually. But that leaves me to thank you, our viewers and our listeners, for joining us today. If you'd like to keep up to speed with our views, please do seek us out on our weekly podcast, Word on Street. Uh, you can find it on all of the usual podcast apps of choice. With that, have a very good month. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.